0: And so for me, I wanted some lasting relationship with my patients. I think I think it's really important for a person to develop a relationship with their physician. So I think you have to be an advocate, get your lab results yourself, get your records yourself. If you don't like something, get a second opinion. So don't be afraid because you're not only affecting yourself, but you're affecting your family, your, your children, you know, the people that love you, your friends, they don't want to see you die. A door opens, it's up to you whether you're going to step through that door. And the thing that keeps people from stepping through that door is fear. And there's been times in my life, and not as many anymore, where I go back and I say, I should have did that, or I should have took that chance. Teaching is something that I knew I was destined to do, it was something I was committed to do. So then I started saying to myself, if I'm going to a different country, I'm gonna learn those customs of that country. and I'm gonna learn at least 10 basic words in their language. Because if you can connect with your audience no matter where they are in the world, that's really essential. And so I gave the lecture, it went well. And afterwards, the, uh, one of the uh, chief people said to me, your lecture was amazing because usually we get some of the other foreign people and they talk down to us. They, they talk you know, in their language and they don't make any attempt to understand our customs and things like that.
1: week on America Real, we bring you Dr. Jim Condrup, who's an obstetrician-gynecologist specializing in minimally invasive surgery. What I really respect about Dr. Condrup is that he travels the world training other physicians on his specialty. In addition, he wants patients to become their own advocate today, doing your own research and bringing that to your medical professional. He also has a YouTube channel that has become an international resource for medical students and doctors around the globe. And now, without further ado, I bring to you Dr. Jim Kondrup. This is American Real, I am Roger Brooks, and today we would like to welcome Dr. Jim Kondrup Dr. Chandra, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Roger. Great to be here today with you guys.
1: Well, I've been looking forward to our conversation to discuss your specialty. Uh, it's very intriguing. I love watching your YouTube videos. Thank you. And the education that you're doing uh, around the world, really, to help, to help other surgeons and, and professionals in the medical field. But uh, before we get into that, can, sure. you, can you tell us about your upbringing and how it all came to be, you know, uh, sure. as a young man to want to... to, to wanna take on this field?
0: Well, it's a ways back now because I'm up there, getting up there in the ages, but I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I was actually born in Naples, Italy. My father was in the Navy, and it was time for me to be born. I was born in a naval base in uh, in Naples, so I had dual citizenship until I was around 18 years old. So then we came back to United States, of course, and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. We grew up kind of poor. My mom basically raised four kids on her own, my dad kinda left and so for a time it was very challenging we, we were kinda poor. I, I kid with my friends that we used to have to travel down walk down to the different places and pick up the government food, the government jelly, the government cheese, Jeez. the milk, things like that and growing up we really didn't have brand new clothes We used to have to go to the the store, sort of like a TJ Maxx, but not as nice. And we have to go to the store and buy irregular clothes because that's all we could afford. And I used to joke with my mother. She'd she'd say, did you get those underwear or pants? And I said, yeah, mom, but it's missing a leg. So we would joke around, but she did fantastic. She raised four children on on what was around, her maximum salary is $12,000 a year. Mm. So that was amazing. So luckily I was in New York and public school was free at that time. So I went to the public school system went to college and actually I wanted nothing more to do than to be a police officer. So I actually went to criminal justice college for two and a half years. I was at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a great place, a great school, doing very well today and but something kept bugging me, something kept gnawing at me saying that yeah you like this but it's just not where you need to be and I think that some people's fate is already determined already. I, I believe in that. I believe that there's a plan in your life. I've, I've lived by that most of my life and so the most of your grief comes from when you resist that plan. So people do have things I think that are set down for them to a certain degree. So for me, even though I love criminal justice, it just, I knew it wasn't right. And then in order to go back and do pre-medical That's courses. It just added another year to college. Luckily, I graduated high school when I was 16, so I had that year to make up. But it was tough; my summers were gone. But I said to my mother, "You know, I said I'm not going to be able to work much at all while I'm going and and going to trying to be a a doctor, trying to get into med school. And you know, there's no guarantee that you get into med school. You do your best. You compete with all the other students who are a few years younger than I was, and then you hope to get into med school. You try your best." And a lot of that has to do with your grades, your testing, things like that.
1: And it's a selection process?
0: Yes, it is. And so what happens is is they they look, a committee looks at you, looks at your grades, looks at your um, schooling and your test scores for your MCATs, they call them, your medical exam, like you take to get into law school. And they decide if they want to give you an interview. Then you get the interview and there's no guarantee you're going to get accepted.
1: And is it true that you select your top, say, five or ten areas that you would like to work
0: sure sure and for medical school basically I, I applied to as many medical schools as i could and so we can get in and my mom of course is is helping me giving the money and i worked a little bit on the weekends but i couldn't work too much i had to study mm-hmm. i literally had to study some of my friends are born geniuses but i'm not like that i really had to work hard to get to get the good grades and work on that so luckily I got into around seven medical schools. I actually had an interview at Harvard Medical School. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And I got the letter. I keep the letter to today to show my children they don't believe it. I didn't get into Harvard. <laughs> but you got the letter. But I had the letter. Right. So that was pretty cool to get that, it just, you know, just to get there, get an sure. interview there. Um, and, you know, when I interviewed there, I almost felt like I didn't belong. It was, you know, I come from a very blue-collar family, and, mm-hmm. and nowadays things have changed, of course. So then I got into medical school, and I chose to go to medical school in Syracuse close enough to my family, my family's very small, but then again far enough away that I could sort of develop my own on my own. I didn't realize how cold it was gonna be up there and how much snow there was gonna be but it turned out well. Then after that I chose to become an obstetrician gynecologist. I had to do a residency, I did that in Connecticut and that was a great experience, very very stressful, more stressful I think back then than it is today because we didn't have the rules. And can you walk, just
1: walk us through sure. first um, how, like, what's a, how, how do you go through a selection process to sure. determine what specialty to go into? Well, you
0: know, uh, y- you have to know who you are. I knew that I w- was a mechanic. I loved to take things apart when I was a child. And I couldn't get them always back together again, but I l- just loved to do things like that. So I knew I wanted to do something surgical. And I, and I think some people struggle, they don't know what kind of area they wanted to go into. So originally my dream was to be a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. And then when they told me it was like 15 years just for the training, I'm like, what? So I turned out to be an obstetrician gynecologist. So what you do while you're in medical school, you get a chance to look at the different areas of medicine. and Then hopefully you say one day, wow, I really enjoy this. I really like doing this because you'd like to do a job that you enjoy doing, right? right? You'd hate to be stuck in a job every day that you hate to go to. So when I was doing my rotations, I really enjoyed working in surgery, yet when I worked with women, I was able to do office work at the same time. You know, see them as patients. With general surgeons or orthopedic surgeons, may see, the, uh, may see the patient just once and never see them again. Okay. And so for me, I wanted some lasting relationship with my patients. I think, I think that's really important. It's important for a person to develop a relationship with their physician. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I just see people now for consults. So then while you're in medical school, you, you choose that and then you choose basically where in the country you would like to train or live. And for me, I applied to a lot of different residency programs and then I went interviewed there. I was lucky enough to work at the place for four weeks or be there as a student that I finally got accepted to. And then when you go to interview with these different programs, they then select you. They say, I think this person's going to fit in our program. I think this person's going to do well. And then you train for a number of years after that, depending upon what you choose, anywhere from three years to five years to seven years, depending upon what you choose to do. Then, after that process goes, people start looking for you they start calling Mm headhunters so here I'm in my last year of residency and people are calling me daily do you want to work in New York do you want to work in Alabama do you want to work in Florida do you want to work in because it's such a desperate need for doctors around this country it's it's unbelievable it's still it's it's getting continues. what's that
1: and that trend continues today The,
0: the trend is getting worse We won't have enough doctors. We don't have enough doctors here where I live now, where we live in Binghamton, we don't have enough doctors, but it's just getting worse and worse. They estimated that we'll be shy some 55,000 doctors in the year 2020. And it's just horrible. So how do you you bring all these doctors? How do you encourage people to go into medicine these days? It's different. So then afterwards, basically, you choose where you want to live, where, you, where the job, you interview for some jobs and you say, yeah, that sounds great, I really want to live there, this is a great community, I want to go there. So when, when I got a phone call to come back to Binghamton, I had spent a year here as a medical student. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the people, I enjoyed the place, and there was a desperate need at the time. A lot of docs in Binghamton when I came were older. Mm-hmm. They were practicing older techniques. When we came here, I would say Binghamton was 10 years back wow. from the rest of the country. And so I came here with another doctor that I had trained with. We had actually spent some time here together. So we said to each other, look, we're really going to work hard. We're going to bring new things here as obstetricians, gynecologists, and see if we can't get Bingham- Binghamton up to speed. And it worked out that
1: way. And that's a great feeling, right? To be able to go to an area that you know is somewhat depressed and in need of this, and then yes. actually having a vision for and for that and seeing it through.
0: I think every human being has to have motivation. And everybody's motivation is different. And for me, uh, something always eats at me. I need to do something new. I just can't settle down and be happy and, and be still. I can't do that. Right. So I'm always looking for something new. I'm always looking to try something new. So when Binghamton called, things were wide open. And. And eventually, being in Binghamton is what led me to do what I do now and meet my fam- my wife, have my family. You know, it's amazing how certain things fall together and come together. Right. And people say to me, would, if you had to go back, would you do that all over again? And I go, well, if I didn't, I wouldn't have what I have now or I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I have now.
1: Right, right, right. So earlier you, you mentioned c- the word commitment. and. Right. Um, uh, I don't know if the average I definitely don't understand that level of commitment so I'd love if you could just just walk us through really what that from from the day you said I I want to be a doctor until it actually came to be and then and, and then the hard work you know begins but what is that commitment level
0: like It's it's very hard to describe like so for me I knew that I had to do things on my own we just didn't have money So I would say to my mother You know, um, I need a car, and she'd say that sounds great. Go ahead and get one, (laughs) and but she she actually had no money to give me, so I had to work all summer just to save for that. And so I use that as an example because when you're hungry for something, when you can't get it any other way, you'll do whatever you need to do to get that. And for me, I had to work all summer and save almost every penny to just basically buy a used car and then afford the insurance on that. Right. And so you get the most basic of cars. I had a stick shift, which I love to this day, yeah. my first car. And so when you look and you want to become a doctor, you know, some people say, hey, if I can't become a doctor, I'll do this or I'll do that. For me, once you make that commitment, sort of like my son, I'll discuss that with you later, when he decided he wanted to go to Naval Academy. So what happens is that you set your sights straight ahead, and nothing can get in your way not that you're going to go into roadblocks and when you hit roadblocks you can either go through them over them or around them and everything's a challenge like like for example when you when you have a commitment to go pre-medical you cannot get poor grades you just can't it's
1: not an option no
0: it's not an option so for me a b plus for some people oh my god it's great but for me a b plus is a disaster Mm -hmm because it drops your GPA so for me I had to study and study and study and study and overstudy so there'd be days where I'd be studying in my room at home by myself my friends would be calling me and say let's come let's go out let's go have some fun let's go to a party let's go do this and I'd say I can't I got a test coming up Monday and I was competing with with other students that were three years younger than me that were fresh out of high school that were geared up to do that I was studying criminal justice two and a half years right. So once you, once you sit down and you commit to, to studying and to becoming a doctor or whatever you want to be, an FBI agent, criminal justice, a lawyer, you focus, your whole life focuses on that. And it's really hard. I didn't have, a, at that time, I didn't have a, a steady girlfriend. I didn't have, I wasn't married. So for me, it was a little easier to do that. Mm-hmm. But I had the support of my family. My mother would say, whatever you want to do, that's, I'll support you, whether it be criminal justice or whatever it was. So that was very helpful. So, a lot of commitment, a lot of, a lot of studying, a lot of understanding that there'll be disappointments along the way. And when you fail a test or when you, well, I never failed a test, but when you don't do as well on a test, I think I failed one test, but when you don't do as well, you go to your professor, you go to your, your um, teacher and you say, what can I do? to make this better the next time. And it's, it's amazing how many teachers say that people don't do well, they never come for help. They yeah. never ask. Yeah,
1: and that's a good life lesson even for young people out there. Uh, for anything. I, I had a discussion with my daughter this week and uh, we had a meeting at the school. And it's the matter of taking that initiative to go in to, to the teacher or professor and letting them know, you know, I need help. I, I, you know, what, what do I need to do? And um, it exactly. works. It works.
0: And and you'll make mistakes, I mean I, I still say stupid things and, and I st- still do stupid things and not as many as I used to but you need to look back at that and say, okay what did I do wrong and how can I make that better the next time? And I think what people don't realize is the value of mentors. Yes. People that basically would love to help you, you're afraid to approach. But if you just ask them, they'll help you. For example, you know, when I first started speaking, I, I really wasn't that good. And, and I'm not where I want to be yet today. But for me, the key thing was I watched other people that were great speakers and I said, what does that person have that makes them great? And then when I did my first speaking in front of a bunch of surgeons, I called a guy that I had just known and he's a great speaker and I said, you know, really nervous. Can you give me some advice? and he said absolutely, he said just understand that when I started out I felt just like you and remember that most of the people in your audience they don't know as much as you do <laughs> but there will be some people that do or know more and there's always characters and so there's actual techniques about speaking and teaching that you can learn. Yeah and it's you know you have
1: to put your pride aside and you have to be exactly. humble, right, yes.
0: in anything. Yes and, and for me and I know we're, we're jumping ahead but for me teaching is something that I knew I was destined to do, it was something I was committed to do. And then I think, you know, I've seen students drop out, of getting back to our subject, I've seen students drop out of medical school. I had one I tried to convince her to stay. She'd be in the hallway crying, and I just can't take the stress of these exams, because medical school is nothing like college. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go through high school, then you do four years of college studying, and then when you get to medical school, you know you're all in because now your family they love you being in medical school you're going to be a doctor you've you've tried so hard you got accepted and very few people fall out of medical school Mm -hmm. in american medical school very few people and so the studying if you thought you studied hard in college you have no clue because medical school was 10 times harder than college
1: and in addition to that are you actually in the hospital at this point shadowing and not the first year not for sure okay. in the first
0: year it's all about basic sciences okay. doing anatomy learning the basics of chemistry the body human body and things like that then in the second year you get some small exposure to patient contacts so they ease you on in and then the third and fourth year is all about a medical school which is four years in the united states and then the third and fourth year it's all about basically You're being in contact with patients, you know, examining patients, interviewing them and things like that. And then in your fourth year, you get more responsibility. And I've
1: always been fascinated with the level of knowledge that doctors have in general. Um, And you talk about the commitment to to studying. But it's just interesting when when you go in, you you don't know much, right? You went through four years of of med school or or of college and now you're in med
0: school. Exactly.
1: Is it memorization? Is it? Um, you know, you mentioned that you weren't top of your class, and, and so you had to work extra hard. How do you remember all the terms, all the, you know, different diseases? How, how does that, that, that's how powerful our brain is, I guess.
0: Sure. Well, it's like anything. As for example, you can't have an Olympic athlete who doesn't train every day and you can't have a singer that doesn't practice every day or doesn't practice constantly to sing. I I would, if I came back in my next life, I'd love to be an entertainer or a singer. I'd love to be that. And some people have a gift. And then the hardest thing I think for people and for children these days is to find their gift. And so not everyone that's a doctor should be a doctor. You know, they, they choose to be a doctor because they're smart. They get in because they're smart, but they're not necessarily the, the best surgeon. They're not necessarily the best person to interact with their patients. But you train yourself, and I think that's the purpose of medical school and pre-med. You train yourself to learn how to take knowledge in on a rapid basis and process it and then later on like now medicines like i'm in my office and i'll will be giving a patient medicine and she'll say gee can i take this medicine and i'll say hang on a second i reach for my iphone and i pull it out and it gives me all the interactions right, right in front of the patient where in the old days i'd say hang on a second Going come in with a big book okay so now the medical students they they study mostly on their ipads and they look at um, podcasts, they look at videos, and that's why for me, videos are important when I do my surgeries, because that's now one of the ways I teach. There's so many different tools to teach.
1: And we'll talk about that. Yeah.
0: And, so, and some people teach from doing and touching, and some people teach from reading. I don't learn from reading. I, see. I learn from seeing. My brain is right sided. My brain is touching, seeing, mm-hmm. and doing. That's how I learn, and that's how most surgeons learn.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, why do you do what you do? I mean, from an from a emotional and, you know, why?
0: Well, I do many things. And, you know, uh, every person has different roles. You know, a father, a husband, uh, you know, a family person, uh, a surgeon, a counselor, a teacher. I, I, for me, I don't like the 9 to 5 desk job. I like to be up move around that's my nature I was always a hyperactive child and it was horrible for a hyperactive child these days or back those days everybody thought it was a a disease everybody thought it was basically you know your child needs to be disciplined more but my body doesn't like to sit still Mm -hmm. and when I was in grade school you sit in the class for three hours while the teachers change and it was horrible for me and then when you get into high school you know, middle school, high school, you change every forty five minutes, which is great for me. Right. In college, you you know, you do what you do. In med school, a lot of classes you can come in and out of the classroom if you need to and stuff like that. I always sat in the back so I can go out, get a coffee, come back in. That's just my nature. Right. And so for me, I do what I do because it I like doing different things. And I like seeing results. I'm a I'm a, a result person. I like to see something right away. I'm an immediate result person. So for me, operating, being a surgeon, seeing a patient, meeting them, discussing things with them, getting things done, getting things finished, teaching, getting things over, for me that's my nature and that's my passion. And when you try to change that, like if they put me in a nine to five job sitting at a desk, I'm done. Your your body energy will be gone. And you have to figure out what makes you go every day? What keeps you going? And when, you know my, and, and my mother, my mother died when she was 90. You know, She was an amazing woman and until that time she did the treadmill every day at wow. one mile an hour. I couldn't get my treadmill to go one mile an hour. You know, <laughs> It creaks and cranks. And so, but when she you know, fell and got injured and, and I remember her saying to me, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I, I can't do this. It's not me. And, and, and I totally understood what she was talking about because I knew her constantly on the move, constantly doing something. And then when her time came, she said, I, I don't want to do this. Mm. It's not me. I don't want to do it anymore. Right. So that means a lot. So, so I think that when you say, why do I do what I do is because I'm driven from something inside. I can't explain what that is. Maybe it's God saying, this is what you need to do. So don't resist it. Just go do it. Right.
1: I mean, are there days, uh, it's it's hard for a doctor to have a bad day, right? Yeah. Are there days, do do you have, like all of us, bad days?
0: Oh, yeah, doctors have bad days. And, and, you know, you have to be an actor or an actress. Mm -hmm. And we all have bad days. And I think somebody once taught me, and I don't remember who it was, one of my mentors said, look, you know, you're going to have a bad day, and basically the next day may not be bad. Mm -hmm. And so the strength comes when you have a bad day then know that, the next day may be better or even outrageously fantastic. And so it's hard for people that are in severe depression to realize that just because you're having a bad day today doesn't mean you're going to have a bad one tomorrow. But the key to having a bad day is to say, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is, and try not to take it out on everybody else, because people do. And then people that know me well say, are you having a bad day? Like, what happened this morning? You know, I got up, the car was out of gas, or the the boys left the lights on the car, the battery's dead, I got to get to work, you know, or, or something like that, or the phone was ringing all night, or they were calling me from the emergency room all night. Yeah, you have bad days. Or things just don't go the way you thought they would go.
1: What's the feeling like to help another human being?
0: Um, it 's very powerful and and it 's not like it 's not like you see in the movies where you see on e r where you cardiovert somebody or you you know you pull a, a knife out of their chest and save their life it, it's it 's in small increments and I think what comes back to me is when I get a letter in the mail and i 'm having a bad day and I open up a letter it 's almost like okay god 's holding the letter in the mail and then you're having a bad day and then all of a sudden you open this letter and it's a patient saying how wonderful you were, you know, how you changed their life, how you affected their life. And so it's very powerful and, you know, you sort of of get used to it, which is not a good thing because you start doing all these things all the time and then uh, that's just what you do until you step back until some woman in the store runs up to you in Target or whatever you are, what store you're at, or Wegmans, and and my wife's next to me, oh, this is the guy that's responsible for you, you know, this is the doctor that gave my baby, and my wife understands what these things mean now. And so it makes you feel really powerful and to see that you've helped somebody or there are times where a patient is really in bad shape and you come in and you, and you save the day. And, and that's what led me to do a lot of my speaking on genetics now, which we'll, t- we'll okay. talk about eventually. But it's, an, it's a very powerful feeling, very, yeah. very powerful.
1: And isn't that why we're here? To oh, help others?
0: Totally. Yeah. It, it really is. And there's a move, there was a movie called, is it Pay It Forward? Mm-hmm. I love that yes, movie. Yes, I love that movie. And um, I don't like the ending of the movie, but I love the movie. But I think that when, I remember one day my son and I, my wife and my children and I, we were down in New York City and we were basically um, shopping Christmas time and stuff like that. It was started raining and so the guys were on the corner selling umbrellas and I was with my son, I think it might have been Gavin or Peter, I forgot who it okay. was. Um, and so we were sitting there and standing there when it was raining so of course you can buy an umbrella for $5, Five bucks, from the sure. guys on the street, right? so i said to my son this is what we're going to do so i went over and i said to the guy here's twenty dollars cash but i want five umbrellas he goes no it's a five dollars an umbrella so you get four umbrellas i said well here's forty dollars cash give me ten umbrellas you're not going to sell ten umbrellas in the next half hour and the guy says okay <laughs> so we gave him twenty dollars cash and we just started handing umbrellas out to people wow. that didn't have umbrellas and my son says what are you doing i said i got twenty dollars when i was your age i didn't have twenty dollars and the guy at the guy in the corner the umbrella guy is like looking at me like you're taking away my business I said don't worry i'll come back for some more umbrellas and so the guy that was poor sitting on the corner selling the umbrellas what do you think the guy's gonna make in a day right. a couple of bucks right. he made some money yep. people walking by from different countries caught in the rain.
1: And a great lesson They got an son. umbrella.
0: And I said to my son, how do you feel? He says, it feels great. But some people wouldn't take an umbrella. They thought something was attached to it, like, you know, I said, here, take the umbrella. And I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, take the umbrella, yeah. it's all right to do that. But you know, things like that, you know, they, they always help people if you can.
1: Yeah. I, I've been trying for the past several years to try to do something nice for someone every day. It's hard. I mean, when you get caught up, I mean, for you, it's a little bit easier because you're in the field of helping people. Oh, yeah. I see a lot of
0: people that don't have any insurance lately. Right. It's easy to do that.
1: Yeah. But, you know, even if it's, um, you know, even if I receive a message on For American Real and reach back out to people, people love that. Well, sending a
0: message out to other people, you know, the people that you interview that send messages to other people, you don't realize how lonely people are in this world today. That's right. And you never know when you're gonna to touch somebody. And, as, and I, as my wife used to say to me, I would go to a lecture and only be four people there. And I'd say, you know, we did all this advertising, we, we did this, we did that, and only four people showed up. My wife would go, but maybe you'll help one person. She's right. Yeah, so I was looking yeah. at it that way. Right. I'd lecture in front of four people or a thousand people. Yeah, That's You great. never know. Right. So let's talk about your work. Sure. Tell us,
1: in, I guess in, in some detail, what, is what does it involve?
0: Okay, so, so when you look back, you know basically, and what I did when I first came to Binghamton, I was doing a lot of um, obstetrics and gynecology. There was a huge need here. And we had bought a practice from somebody. We worked at a couple of hospitals here in, in town. And, and then there was a tremendous need for something called infertility or fertility. And for some reason, remember how I told you, how as a plan? For some reason, when I was in residency, the fertility specialist took a liking to me and none of the senior residents wanted to do fertility. And I had a great interest in it, helping people who couldn't get pregnant sure. get pregnant. And in Binghamton, there was like nobody around doing that. So when I started doing that, I was overwhelmed with all <laughs> these patients. I'm like, oh my goodness. And so my mentor back in Connecticut, I would call him all the time and I'd say, how do I do this, how do I do that? And he says, but, you know, let's do this and that. So we actually in, um, in 1990, I was sitting at a conference in New York City, and I was sitting one, uh, next to one of the biggest fertility specialists in Boston, and I didn't know it. Wow. Average guy, and most people that are famous, that are rich, that are you know really well-known, they're average guys. Mm-hmm. They're, just, right. they're just great, whatever, you know, it turned out for them. But, and a lot of them are really friendly people. They're just very cautious, but they're very friendly people. And so he sat next to me and I said, what do you do for your fertility people? And I go, well, you know, I do this and that. He says, well, when they need in vitro, what do you do? And I go, well, we sent them to New York City three hours away. he goes, well, why don't we build something together? He's in Boston, I'm in Binghamton. So in 1990, we established only the third satellite in vitro program in the country. The other one was in Seattle, Washington, the other was in North Carolina. So people would get stimulated here, and then they would travel to Boston and get their in vitro there. Now, of course, things are local. Mm -hmm. So when I started doing that, there was a greater need for... Surgery because a lot of these patients had anatomical problems, endometriosis, things like that. I was so busy doing surgery and learning new techniques, I couldn't do deliveries anymore. Wow. So, in 1992, about 1992, I stopped doing deliveries. It was a tough decision, but I was so busy doing surgery that I had to do that. And then over the years, Basically we started learning how to do what's called minimally invasive surgery. Back then it was called belly button surgery or laparoscopic okay, sure. surgery, yeah. It wasn't called that. Right. So I had to go away get training because there was no YouTube. There was no flash drives back then. This was where, you know, early 90s, right? So I had to go to different places to learn the different techniques. Then I had to convince the hospital to buy the equipment that we needed to do these techniques. So we went from a, a hospital, an area in Binghamton here where we were doing, I would say, 95% open cut surgeries, right? To now we're doing 98% minimally invasive, tiny right. little hole surgeries.
1: So all your risks go down.
0: Yes, a lot of risks go down. The patient recovery goes, you know, uh, is quicker. S- is the Pain is less.
1: Success rate S- better?
0: Um, It depends on what you're doing, yeah. Complications can be lower, Mm -hmm. but you know, scars,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: pain, things like that. People now, there's a lot of um, uh, single moms. There's a lot of moms that are working and they can't be out six to eight weeks having a big cut surgery. So what happened, I saw an opportunity and basically it just escalated from there in different training and then I got a lucky break one day. And like I said to you before earlier, things happen for a reason. A door opens, it's up to you whether you're gonna step through that door. And the thing that keeps people from stepping through that door is fear, right? Yes. So opportunities come, you're, you're, you're fear, afraid of something, a, a past event in your life keeps you from taking a chance, whatever it is. And, and there's been times in my life, and not as many anymore, where I go back and I say, I should've did that, or I should've took that chance. So what happened for me was one day I was doing surgery, And one of the equipment reps came to me and said, look, um, one of our speakers hurt his back really bad and can't speak Friday and we have people flying in from different countries. These, there's any chance, I know it's only two days from now, but there's any chance that you can come speak for us? And I'm like, okay. So yeah, I'll give it a try. So this was about teaching a technique that I had been doing for several years that they thought I did well. So I said, well, okay, what do I do? I, I've never spoke before. You know, what do I do for video things? And back then, we didn't have flash drives. We didn't have that sort of thing. So I had VHS tapes oh of my, my surgeries. So what I had to do is I'd stay up hours and hours, and I had to put all of my VHS tapes at the spot where I was going to slip them into the machine and then play them, play them, play them, play them. So I had to go back and put them right where they were. I didn't have any fancy editing material. I'm a surgeon.
1: But you made it work.
0: But I made it work. And the key thing is, speak on what you know, learn techniques, of course, the, the first speaking event was a little on the rough side, but it worked, okay. and it worked out well. None of the tapes snapped, and um, I think that that was it. Then after that, people approached me and said, you know, you did a great job, do you wanna do this on a, on a regular basis? And then I was picked up by other people, other companies, and they would say, you know, we heard about you, we saw you speak, or whatever it is. Just snowballed. And snowballed after yeah. that. Then I got another lucky break, so that was my first break on speaking and and I enjoyed that. And then I got another lucky break where I was starting to use a brand new instrument. How I got involved, oh I know what it is. I once said to the rep, look I'm hungry. I like new things. Anything new comes out, I want to be one of the first people to try it. Even if it's a disaster, I want to try it. So they called me and said we have a new instrument, you're doing a lot of laparoscopic surgery, you're doing a lot of minimally invasive surgery. Do you want to try it? I go, I'm there. So I think I was one of the first groups of surgeons in the world that got trained on its instrument and as it turned out I loved it. Hmm. And I said I love this instrument and and our team is going to teach the company all the things that they don't know the instrument can do. So then I got a phone call and they said well we want you to come to Europe and teach at our European institute but all the people you're going to teach are from different countries from around the world. They are all the lead reps of that and I said well you do that and I'm like I'm there. So that was my first real trip overseas like that to do that. So then I got there and I was teaching people from the Middle East, from South Africa, from uh, Indonesia, China, all those different countries. Then I started getting emails. Could you come do surgery in our countries? Could you come teach our surgeons? Could you come do that? And I'm like, "Uh, sure. That's
1: incredible. (laughs) And, yeah. It must have been so gratifying.
0: uh... It was scary yeah it wasn't it wasn't gratifying until later
1: (laughs) okay but but you talked about the fear and you talk about breaking through that resistance again life lesson right if you don't take that risk if you didn't take that first speaking assignment maybe none of this would have occurred at least the way it did
0: exactly if I didn't keep asking my wife out on a date constantly, she kept rejecting me. I don't know how long it took. My kids, my kids always, uh, always joke and they say, Mom, Dad says he kept asking you out until he wore you down. And she said, yeah, I got so tired I finally had to say yes, right. which is kind of true to a certain degree. But, but I, I think that's true. And, and then, you know, I almost, on my first speaking engagement, my, my trip overseas, I almost said no. I almost canceled. I was up wow. all night worried about it. And one of my first trips was to the Middle East.
1: Hmm. What was that like?
0: Um, it was very scary because I would never been to the Middle East before and so basically I didn't know anything about the customs and you hear all kinds of stories, Oh, you're going to fly over there and they're going to cut your head off and stuff like that. At least my buddies kept saying that to me I'm like, this is not helpful, right. could you please stop doing that? <laughs> and so I would call the people and they would say, you really, you-, you-, you have no idea what it's like here, you're going to be so surprised. And I think there were two things. One is lecturing in the Middle East, the customs, doing the right thing. I didn't want to do the wrong thing because the customs are very different. True. So then I started saying to myself, if I'm going to a different country, I'm going to learn those customs of that country. and I'm going to learn at least 10 basic words in their language. Because if you can connect with your audience no matter where they are in the world, that's really essential. And I, and I learned so many speaking techniques. We could spend an hour talking about speaking techniques, mm-hmm. interviewing techniques, things like that.
1: Can you give us an example of... Absolutely.
0: Okay, great. Okay, so my very first uh, teaching was in Saudi Arabia. And never been to the Middle East. I had to get a visa and things like that. So I'm on a plane. I'm on, I think I was on Middle East Airlines. I'm flying in from, I think it was Dubai into Saudi Arabia. And there's absolutely no alcohol allowed in Saudi Arabia. And you know, there's going to be here and there, but so it was going to be a dry trip, which was actually better because my mind was totally clear. Mm -hmm. But as I'm sitting there filling out the customs form on the plane, write in big letters that says death to drug traffickers, right in red letters. And I'm like, geez, I've never seen a customs form like this before. And in my bag is Tylenol, you know, some Advil, some Aleve. And I'm like, I wonder if that's included <laughs> in right. there right. So I'm sitting on the plane and this guy's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm like, what, you know, nervous how to fill this out. He turned out to be the minister of energy. And I'm like, so we're shooting the breeze. Nice guy. Talked for a while and um, and so I get to the Middle East and this guy greets me and turns out to be one of my best friends now great guy okay. a really good friend I think the scary part for me was you know speaking in front of the audience but then doing surgery in a foreign country that's a whole different thing so my first speaking engagement was at a women's hospital and it was in front of um, I think an audience of a hundred people all had burkas on all burkas all the women had the full dress on and the men had you know, their tobes, their robes on and everything. And my, my, um, my guide said to me, Now remember, don't touch the women, don't shake their hand. You just basically, you can speak to them, but don't, and the men, you shake their hand, you give them a kiss. And the hardest part was the memory is it left side first or right side? Because mm. if you, you don't know what side you're going for, you might, you know, kiss in the middle. You don't want to do that. <laughs> so each country is some are three kisses, some are two kisses. And men in, in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, you greet by kissing the cheek. You go, and, you know, in other countries, it's three times and stuff like that. So for me, I had my laptop, and I, and I had to hand it to one of the women, you know, and I couldn't touch her hand, so it was, I was trying to be extra cautious. So I get up in front of the, the audience, and I'm so nervous. And I'm nervous of two things. One is I don't want to say the wrong things. And the other thing that I'm very nervous about is that your technology will dive on you. All speakers have that problem. Yeah. But I've got that pretty much solved now but all people think that your technology will crash on you and then you're speaking on your own. So the first thing I said as they got up there and they introduced me and I said, assalamu alaikum. I said, Sabah alaykum. And the whole audience clapped and went, you know, outrageous. And so my rep looks at me and goes, how'd you know that? Well, you go on, you know, online. I've asked people on the plane, you know, people, you, you know, the, the, the people that are serving you on the plane to say, how do you say good morning? And what do you say? How do you greet somebody? What's the proper way to greet somebody? And then once you have the audience after that, you know, it's great. And, and they appreciate that. And so I gave the lecture, it went well. And afterwards, the, uh, one of the uh, chief people said to me, your lecture was amazing because usually we get some of the other foreign people and they talk down to us. They, they talk, you know, in their language and they don't make any attempt to understand our customs and things like that. And so that was, that was amazing.
1: Yeah, and it's those little the the, the extra effort that you give uh, anyone. Again, and it's a great life it lesson. Makes a
0: tremendous difference. Yeah,
1: and and it sounds like the welcome was, uh, you, you know, you were well received and,
0: there. And it worked out great. And were you asked to come back? Yeah, I've been back to Saudi Arabia like six times, wow, yeah. <laughs> so I've I've been all the different different countries in the Middle East um, and many countries around the world. Do you
1: respect their customs? Not that you don't respect them, but do, do you? do you respect that that's the way it is there? Um, or do you wish it was more Western?
0: Well, I mean, you, you have to respect another country's customs. It's not your country. That's right. Americans generally think that everybody in the world should be like Americans. And so they often try to instill those customs you know, uh, on those other people. But I think what you need to understand is I don't always agree with their customs from a lot of different angles morally or whatever it is but you have to respect their customs no matter what they are and I think that that's really important and they appreciate that Absolutely. they really do appreciate that and from a surgeon it's important for me to women around the world are the same no matter where you are surgeons around the world they struggle just like every other surgeon. And some of the surgeons in different countries are actually better surgeons than American surgeons because they work with much less. And they get paid much less right. and they work so many long hours. And I feel for those people. And for me it's very important that I can even teach them one or two things. But I teach them more than that, hopefully but if I can teach them one or two things that's important. And I learn something when I travel from surgeons in other countries also.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you the difference uh, b- between you know, the U.S. And, and other areas abroad um, and actually I wanted to know who do you think has the, the best medicine for all the places that you've been outside of the U.S.?
0: Who has the best medicine outside the U.S.? In Germany? I think it's pockets. It is so hard to tell. I think it has to do with surgeons. who's the best surgeon who's a good surgeon I think it has to do with the hospital what facilities they have like I've seen I've been in countries where for example I was in Lebanon and I did surgery in Lebanon and I was at this one hospital and I said it's amazing the surgeon was amazing and the equipment they had was better than some of the stuff that I had and I'm like this is great and 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 when then you go to another hospital and they don't have nearly as good stuff and the surgeons Are they a bad surgeon or was the surgeon not trained well? Sometimes most of the times they're not trained well. Mm. I was in the Philippines and I love going to the Philippines because they just love you and they're such lovely people and they're so hungry to learn but when I learned what their residents were getting for training it was pretty sad like for example a resident could graduate and never do a laparoscopy, never do a small hole surgery and I was like why? Well we need more funding we need people to come teach them don't forget in order to teach somebody something you have to have a person that knows how to do that right. and that's where teachers are so important to do yeah. that
1: and are you still doing this today
0: yes I, I still teach a lot now uh, we do some webcasting now podcast hmm. webcast a lot of my videos are seen by people all over the world and and I get feedback all the time and it's really really that's what keeps me going because making a good video you, I could throw up a surgery on there for two hours, and no one's gonna watch that for two hours. When you edit a video to show the fine points and things like that, that takes hours to do that. And, and you don't get paid to do that. Right, um, and but I it's th- important. It's important, yes. oh my God, it's important. But I do travel, education has cut back for many reasons, the finances of the world. The government has put so many rules and regulations on industry now, it's outrageous that they're afraid to make a move, they're, you know, they're taxed on all the equipment now, so they cut back on their education a lot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll teach surgeons that come from other countries, next month I'll be in Cincinnati teaching 10 surgeons from Brazil, as opposed to me going to Brazil. I've been they to Brazil here. three times. Okay. So they'll bring them here for many reasons. So I miss teaching abroad, I do. I miss teaching out of the country. I still do a lot of teaching locally. And some of my teaching has moved towards genetic teaching, uh, genetics and, and, and testing as opposed to just doing surgery, even though I still do a lot of surgical teaching. I see. So can we talk about your YouTube channel? Sure. So my YouTube channel's a mess <laughs> because I, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and so some, I, I, someone said to me, why don't you put some of your surgical videos on YouTube? And I go, how do you do that? Well, first you got to sign into YouTube. You got to sign up and i go, like, "Okay, now what do I do?" Well, then you got to upload. And it's funny because then you can put titles on it and what you describe what it's about and you put it on. And we and I had this discussion before that at one of my videos had like what 4 400,000? Yes. And I'm 000. like, well, "I said, is that good?" Great. And you looked at me and said, "That's incredible." And I go, Okay, and then I went back and I said, "Wow, a lot of people looked at this video. I only got like two thumbs down at a 400,000, which I guess is pretty good, right?" It's great. And then I looked at my other videos, 10,000, 40,000, 5,000, 6,000, and I'm like, "Is that good?" And then you said to me, "How many followers do you have?" And I go, "I haven't a clue." <laughs> and then you said, "Well,
1: it was a few thousand. Let
0: me go look and see. Yeah. And so I didn't realize and it, and, it, and it's funny because it wasn't until I went to London to teach that and you had, we had spoke before that, and I got in London, and, the, and a doc came up to me and says, they said, man, what's going on? We need more videos. I go, what do you mean? He said, we use those to teach our residents. Why don't you make some more? And I go, oh, I didn't know that. And so I didn't realize the impact yeah. that it had yeah. until people approach you and say, you know, this is very impactful. So I've got a lot more to put out there, and I got, but I have other things going on in my life.
1: Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, American Real wants to help you. so we'll, Yeah, we'll, we'll talk I appreciate about that. that. Let's talk about uh, some of the conditions in the different areas around the world. What's, what's the worst? I mean, we talked about some of the good. Sure. Anything?
0: Uh, the- I, I think for me, going into a hospital where I'm going to do surgery, and that's what they ask me to do a lot when I travel overseas, is to do a live surgery and demonstrate things. And just when I think I've, I've done the hardest surgery, just so I think it's a difficult situation, something else comes up. So I think in the early days, going to some of the Middle Eastern countries were a little difficult because you didn't, you didn't the nurses, the people that helped you, didn't speak English. Mm. You didn't have your team. So you know, you're really I,
1: operating alone.
0: Operating alone, yeah. exactly. Well, you have another surgeon, and you just pray and hope that that surgeon is, has good hands and follows you and knows how to work with you. And I brought my own equipment with me. And,
1: and explain to so you're in the midst of this. What do you need? What do you need help with? Is it, is it you need another instrument? Is it... What? you need a clamp? What, what, what are some of the...
0: Well, all surgeries are live surgeries. You can't go back and edit them later on. And sometimes I had an audience of maybe eight surgeons, sometimes 30 in the room with me, and then sometimes a couple of hundred. And so basically you're going to go in and operate on a woman you've never met before. You don't know what her anatomy looks like. You don't know what things look like inside until you actually put the scope in, the telescope in, and look inside and see that. And then you're expected to do like a hysterectomy or remove a cyst or something like an ovarian cyst or something. And so some surgeries are very challenging. So I need different clamps, different energy instruments, different things to make my surgery go smoother. And I used to bring two sets with me. So I'd bring one in one suitcase and one in the other suitcase. And then um, after 9-11 it was difficult to carry things with me because they didn't want anything sharp so I would really bring my expensive things like one instrument might cost several thousand dollars so I would carry with me $10,000 worth of instruments just in my backpack or my carry-on bag and, and some of the people would say you can't do that it's too sharp or whatever so I'd have to show my doctor ID whatever but then I get to a surgery and, and be doing surgery in a foreign country and hope that I had some of the things I needed and a, a surgeon that could assist me during a difficult case So some of those cases were very difficult. I remember I did a surgery in Syria once, just before things happened. So I didn't meet the patient. I finally met her and went upstairs. She spoke no English. I was doing a hysterectomy on her. As it turned out, it was the first laparoscopic hysterectomy ever done in that hospital. And so I said to the people, I said, who's going to help me do the surgery? And they go, well, we don't know. And so they had to dig up a surgeon, a general surgeon that helped me. Turned out the guy was amazing. And the equipment that we had was very, very primitive. The TV I was doing the surgery on was like a regular small little TV. The suction bottle for the anesthesia was one with the little ball that bounces around in it. And the surgery went amazing. But it was in the second level down basement, the second basement level. And here I am in Syria, myself and the rep and doing surgery on someone and the temperature was hundred and ten degrees and I guys and I was wearing a cloth gown
1: even in the basement
0: even in the basement and I said could you turn the, the temperature down a little bit and um, they were like well we only have one thermostat that controls all five floors of the hospital so we really can't turn that thermostat I said I'll be fine thank you <laughs> so so the surgery went great but to get to Syria we had to travel from Lebanon over the mountains through lebanon down into syria and go through a lot of different roadblocks and things like that and there's what's called the neutral zone of 10 miles and it was pretty scary how long ago
1: was
0: that that was just before the arab Spring, so quite a while ago maybe we're looking at eight years now nine years something Mm -hmm. i lost the exact date that it was Mm -hmm. and then my last long trip overseas was vietnam Hmm. What was that like? That uh, was, was an experience. Well, first of all, you know, I get to Vietnam and um, I was, I think I landed Hanoi in and, uh, Hanoi and Saigon. I had hmm. Ho Chi Minh City and Saigon. Okay. And once again, I was expected to do some surgeries, but I didn't know anything about the facilities and stuff like that. So, but by this time, I, I was getting smart. So at this time, I recruited the company that also made the video systems to bring their stuff in. And they were so helpful. And the Vietnamese people would just, wonderful to me wonderful they greeted me like I was an amazing you know professor surgeon they were just amazing and so I met the patients before surgery and um, the conditions are getting better but you know you'd have six women in one room wow. and the surgery basically you'd have a backlog of, of, of dozens of surgeries for these surgeons because they just aren't enough surgeons to do the surgery and they are so hungry to learn over there they're wonderful people and they're they're so hungry to learn new techniques the young surgeons that are coming up they just want to learn it so much so our goal was to teach them laparoscopic hysterectomy through small little holes that was our goal and to show them the techniques that we do to keep complications down but yet make it affordable so they can do it quickly and make it affordable for everybody
1: in a hysterect to me is a removal of the uterus? Yes,
0: removal of the uterus, sometimes the ovaries, but it's just you remove the uterus, whatever disease it is. So So we were so successful. So I did a surgery there, a live surgery in front of Hundreds of people, so the rooms have different rules than they have in the United States. The room was packed, so I had people like bumping me while I'm doing the surgery. It was cool. I was used to it after that.
1: Wouldn't experience.
0: It it, it was amazing. It's like you know, I had a microphone because everything's live, and they they got cameras coming from all angles.
1: They probably have interpreters.
0: Yes, yes, (laughs) and you don't want to screw up. Right. (laughs) It wouldn't look good. Right. So the pressure's on you to do that, but you know, once you get started and you get focused, you just do what you normally do. And then you have to talk and explain to it. And you have to say what's on your mind, minus the curse words, of course. But you have to say what's on your mind so that people say, well, what's this surgeon thinking? I think people want to know, wow, these actors, these actresses, they're so cool, these singers, they're like, what do they really feel? What do they really do? And people say to me, what are you thinking when you see that situation? And I remember I was doing a surgery in, I was in Indonesia. Hmm. At a small hospital that had beautiful equipment, I couldn't believe it. And so an, an artery got cut before I could coagulate it and it was bleeding, you know, and that's all kinda happens. And so I heard somebody say, what's he gonna do now? And I had like so many people watching me. And so I said, well, this is how you handle this situation. And we took care of it.
1: So you're thinking out loud. Right, so they and if
0: you have a beautiful, perfect surgery when you're teaching, people wanna know, what do I do if I get into this situation? What do I do if I get into that situation? Right. So these were challenges for me that I, that I had on the road.
1: Did you ever run into a major complication? uh... Um,
0: A major complication, no, but I ran into a major situation where basically the hospital was trying to tag on so many surgeries for me to do, and it wasn't turning into a teaching experience, it was turning into a working experience. And so when I looked around, I said, well, where's all the people I'm teaching? They're all gone home for the day, and I'm just doing this surgery so there was some friction with that and so in future cases we said well this is what we're going to do and this is what we need so no complications like
1: that and it probably just goes to show you the demand over there for this type of absolutely and
0: it's still there it's it's still a big demand there Mm. so what other passions do you have well you know i'm working a lot um and another i love speaking i mean you put me in front of anybody i'll speak about anything i just love speaking and and i've gotten to the point now where I, I, I'm nervous as all heck until we start, and then once you get going, you get going. And, and big audiences, I love big audiences, and, and you just, I remember sitting, I remember sitting as a student at a conference and trying to stay awake, you know, sticking a pen in my arm, pinching myself, and I would say to myself, if I ever get a chance to talk in front of an audience, I will never do what that person does. I'll never search for my slides and my videos as if I didn't prepare. I'll never say the word uh, uh, uh all the time. I'll I'll never read the slide to the audience. I won't do that. I want it it to be fun. Mm -hmm. Teaching is a performance. It's something that you prepare for. You know your audience. You know what you're speaking on. You practice it. And then you hope that it flows. It doesn't always work. I've had times all speakers have where something goes wrong but my passion is getting out and now in women's healthcare, my one of my biggest passions is empowering women and that's not only in choosing their surgery their surgery types their choices you know the old days of I go in a doctor said you need a hysterectomy you need this those are, those are done for now women get on the internet they find they, they research me before mm-hmm. they come in mm-hmm. and they come in with information and I, and I love that but, but I think the cancer, hereditary cancers, is a big passion for me. I speak now, all over the United States, on hereditary cancers in women. Hereditary ovary cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, and a lot of women carry a predisposition to these cancers and they're being shortchanged.
1: Okay. So what, is, what does that mean?
0: So their doctors, whether they be family practitioners, surgeons, gynecologists, practitioners, a lot of women see nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, that's, I mean, that's amazing, that's great. They're not being tested. They're not being asked the right questions. So if you don't ask the patient the right question about their family history and you don't look to see if they carry a gene that gives them an 87%, 87% chance of a risk for breast cancer, you'll kill them. Yeah. So you know what the risk of breast cancer is now, around 10% in the population. But you hear about it every day, ribbons, marches, runs, 5K runs for breast cancer, right? right. But it's only 10%. But if I told the woman you have an 87% chance of getting breast cancer, wow. That so yeah. what's happening is too many women are not getting tested and they're getting cancer. And I have patients all the time. This year alone I had three women who got breast cancer that should have had the testing for the gene, and like Angelina st- Jolie.
1: Right, right, right. Where does that start, though, the family physician? Starts
0: at the visit. They're, they're, the fir- they're the- no, either the gynecologist's office or the family physician, okay. or the breast surgeon, depending upon who they see. And so a woman will come in to me for her yearly checkup. Maybe she's 21 or 18, whatever it is. I'm obligated to say to her, is there any family history of cancer in your family? And if you don't do that, and you don't test them, and they get ovarian cancer, or they get breast cancer, you've killed them. Hmm and so it's still happening and it's still happening at such a great amount surgeons are overwhelmed or they don't want to learn something new or gynecologists family practitioners or practitioners they don't they're so overwhelmed
1: so if they do say yes then you're, you're going through a whole different series of testing because it's, because it's one it's blood, blood family, test right
0: so you come in and you say my aunt had ovarian cancer bing i say well i think we should do a blood test to see if you carry the gene just mm. like angelina jolie carries mm for breast and ovarian cancer. And it's not just that, there's so many cancers now. And they go, yeah, I'd like to find out about that.
1: What if they say, I don't know? Are uh, gonna be proactive? They don't know if they wanna be tested? They, they don't know if there's any history in the family. Well, then you,
0: not much you can do. Okay. But a lot of women do know, mm-hmm. or they'll find out. Right. And it's not just women. These genes are carried 50% by men. Really? And 50% by women. And so, passed,
1: so I could pass it on to my daughter exactly
0: okay. I occasionally will test men but I'm a gynecologist so I see mostly women right but so I go and I speak to teach practitioners surgeons obstetricians general public and what we'll do we should I should do a podcast on that basically to let them know that if your surgeon or your your gynecologist your practitioner or your family doesn't ask you about your family history ask them why Right.
1: so you have to be your own advocate
0: you do in many things, especially in, in this area. This year alone I saw you know those women without cancer, and I had a, a woman several years ago that got ovarian cancer, and she carries the gene, and she never got tested. And I think just in general for women these days, you need to research, for example, it's not unlikely for me to see two women a month that their doctor said, oh, the only way I can do your surgery is to cut you open, or whether it be a bikini cut or an up and down cut. Then they'll come to see me and they'll say, well, my doctor said the only way I want another opinion, and I get them from all over the state, sometimes out of state, my doctor said the only way you can do that surgery is to cut me open. I'm like, I, I don't think so. And I'm not like, God's gift, but I've had the training in that there's a 99% chance I can do it without cutting you open right. through small holes. Yeah. And And it's just a matter of training, but the surgeons aren't volunteering that to their patients. And so the patients are assuming that's their only choice. Mm. So I think you have to be an advocate. Get your lab results yourself. Get your records yourself. If you don't like something, get a second opinion. Right.
1: Right. Uh, What advice do you have for people in general, but especially women, because this is your field, that just are afraid to go to the doctor or they know they should go in and it's been five years. What advice do you have? Because a lot of people just, they're intimidated. They don't want anything to be wrong.
0: I've been in practice 30 years. So when I look back at those patients that have gotten cancer, the majority of them got cancer or advanced cancer because they didn't go for their regular checkups. And that's not always that case, but that's generally the reason cervical cancer especially is one of the saddest things. Or cancer of the uterus where a woman has bleeding and just kind of, oh, it's probably okay. It doesn't hurt and and then you come in and their cancer is advanced or they went to a doctor and had a bad experience they were treated poorly and so they ignored the problem because they never want to go back to another doctor again and and it don't you know you have you have to get over that somehow or look for another doctor Mm -hmm. and and go to somebody else if you're not happy with the person that you saw i mean i don't get along with every patient that i see i mean you put your own personal Bias is in you. You have a bad day or mm-hmm. something like that. Well, you just don't click with somebody, so go to somebody else. I mean, I'm happy with that. I send patients to other surgeons to do things that I can't do. So don't be afraid, because you, you're not only affecting yourself, but you're affecting your family, right. your your children, you know, the people that love you, your friends. They don't want to see you die. They don't they don't want to see you, you know, could have done something that was preventable. Those are the saddest moments. When you when something was preventable or okay. easily curable, and now they let it go so far you can't do it.
1: And it is the difference between life and death, right? If you're not totally getting checked on a what annual basis? Well,
0: annual, a semi-annual basis, or even when you have a problem. Now here, especially in Binghamton, it's access. Even if you want to go see a doctor, you can't. <laughs> it's so sad. And you know, a lot of it has to do with many things in medicine. But you know, each state you're in has different rules and regulations that. That make it harder or easier or difficult.
1: So you talk about being your own advocate, sure. And, and I, it's so important. Uh, actually, when our daughter Alexis was born, she's now 15. She was born with a hemangioma uh, on her eye, sure. And it started to swell up, you know, to the size of a golf ball. And we took her into the pediatrician, and, and he said, "It's okay. It'll it'll go away." And we said, "How long?" And he said, "About 10 years." So uh, we, you know, we. This is our first child we didn't know what to do we started you know calling friends or doctors and, and whatnot and um, um that's when i realized you have to be your own advocate have to be so had we not um taken her out of out of this area to go to this, the surgeon that specializes in because in these hemangiomas because they're high risk Anyway, and then to have it, you know, on the eye or, or you know, in the eye, which which hers was, uh, so we found Dr. Milton Weiner, who was out of Arkansas. He, he transferred to New York, and he actually performed the surgery. So, uh, I've been through it firsthand, um, and I can only say that I, I, you know, believe you 110, percent and hope more people will become their own advocates. Do the research. Do do the Google searches. So. Uh, what percentage of people would you say that come in to see you um, are their own advocate?
0: You know, I'd say around 30%. And, and, and it's probably increasing because because of social media. And you get a lot of bad advice on social media. Like I'll say, I think you should take this medicine. Oh, I saw that on Facebook, and I'm not doing that. And I'm like, okay, but I my personal experience is this might happen. Right. And so you'll be okay. but. You know, we don't do everything here. We're a small city, but we do a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of good things here, but we don't do everything here. And I think that you need to go to someone who does it a lot. For example, there was a movement back several years ago where they said, basically, um, we don't want people to specialize anymore. We want everybody to do a little bit of everything. Okay, but then you don't, you're, not, you're not the best at everything. But now it's coming back. So now what they're saying is, okay, say your surgeon does this surgery twice a year. Would you rather go to a surgeon that does it twice a day or does it twice a year? Because it's, it's well known that the more you do something, the more situations you come into. That's why training, military training, mm-hmm. you do over and over, mm-hmm. police training over and over again, because each situation, you may never see it, but you might see it. So when you go to someone who only does something once in a while, like the hemangioma, you're not going to get also the updated advice or the experience. So some things are easy, tonsils, you know, maybe appendix, but some things are more involved. And when they're more involved, they need to go to a place that has access. You are lucky to be able to make calls. You are lucky to be able to travel. Some of my patients can't even travel. Some don't even have enough money for the copays let alone get, a, get permission for their insurance companies to let them go out of the state or out of the city. Yeah. So, but you have to be your own advocate. You have to look after the different options that are open to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of the military, I notice your pen, or pin, I'm sorry, Thank you. on your lapel. Tell us about your son.
0: Well, my oldest son, when he was in high school, early high school, he decided one day, my, my wife's family comes from a big military family. My, my father was Navy, my mother was Army, but my wife's family, Admirals, commanders, lieutenant commanders, captains in the Navy, I mean Marines, Impressive. things like that. So she comes from a big Navy family. And for some reason, and I didn't push my son, one day he said, I want to be in the Navy. And we said, oh, okay, that's great, no, no worries. He says, well, I, I'll do ROTC, you know, reserve Officer sure. training, but I want to go to the Naval Academy. And we had never been to the Naval Academy, so where he came up with that I don't know. But he said, I want to go to Naval Academy. Washington. Uh, we're, we're, in, in Annapolis, Maryland. Annapolis, right. And I go, well, you know what it's like to get in there. It's like, you know, they get like, there's only a 1,000 slots. And, and the first thing you have to do is you have to get the nomination from your local representative or the president or the vice president. And I don't happen to know those guys personally. <laughs> so, and I don't even know your local representative. <laughs> right. so And then you have to do well in school. And you have to be a well-rounded person. And so he said, I'm going to do it. So he kept studying very hard, did great on his SATs, his ACTs, his grades were amazing. But he also did things outside of high school, like, you know, helping other people and things like that, community stuff. And so then he got an interview for the nomination from a local representative, and he was interviewed by a panel of 12. And I had given him a couple pointers on what to say, what to do, and he took some of my advice, but thank goodness he didn't take all my advice. I said, dress very conservatively don't wear anything outrageous. And my, my wife's like, do whatever you want to do, don't listen to your father. So, so and I said, and, and, and think about what you're gonna answer and stuff like that. So he wore these crazy socks, talk about socks, right? Okay. So I love socks, but he wore these crazy socks. And so during the interview, one of the people said to him, one of the people interviewing him said to him, why, why, do you have, why did you wear those outrageous socks to this interview? And it was a panel of like 12 people and okay. he's sitting like in the middle. And he got nervous and he goes, well, those are my lucky socks. I wore those when this and that. And she said, well, I agree with you because I'm a pilot and I always wear my lucky socks when I go on a mission. Great, and Great decision. Yeah. And I, I didn't give that to him. He did that. But anyway, so I remember I was in Singapore. I was teaching when I got the phone call. And he said to me, I just got accepted to the Naval Academy. I'm like, wow. And then you go there and it's one of America's like, Amazing places to go to, and I think everybody should go there in their life. And you see the sacrifice, people don't realize the military and the sacrifice that they do for you every day, so that we can have Facebook. You, you go out to different countries, they don't let you use Facebook, right. they monitor everything. But so we'd be free, so you can go get a latte, you can go to this movie, you can go watch this, you can say what you want to say on social media. But that's because the military is out there fighting for you. And our son is one, he's senior now, he'll be graduating soon, he's going to do submarines. but when you go there, when you meet the people, and you realize who they are and the sacrifice they do, it's not college. One of the things is that the, N, the N for Navy now, the little symbol, and, it, and they have t-shirts that say not college because you don't get to come and go as you please. You've got to go to class. They'll throw you out. Right. You've got and to do military training. You've got to do wake up every day at 5.30 in the morning. There's no missing. And you can't walk off, you can't get breaks. You, don't get, you can't leave the yard, what they call the, the campus. You can't go anywhere you want to go but it's amazing to sacrifice. I remember the first day we were there, we were walking in before he, they shaved his head before they took him in for the first day and we're just standing there and it's a beautiful grounds, are amazing. There's a lot of heritage there, ancient. And so basically we're standing there and I'm with my wife and my two sons and Ben, he's getting ready to go in the next day to get his head shaved and, and I see this officer coming in from one of the gates and he's got gold on I said, this guy must be an officer, right? So there was a, a military person there, and I said, "Do you mind? Do you think that that officer would take a picture with us?" And just because I wanted to get a picture with somebody, and my wife said, "Stop talking to people." So the guy comes over, and I and I looked at his bars, and I, and I had read up on this, and it was a captain. I said, "I said, Captain, would you mind a picture?" And he goes, "Oh, sure." And so the military person said, um, the whoever was on duty said, "Sure, he'll, he'll, he's a nice guy." So we took a picture, and and so. My wife and my son, and, and he goes, Well, son, did you get directly into the academy or did you go through prep school first? And he says, Well, I got directly. He says, Well, that's fantastic. And he says, I'll be seeing you around. And he says, Well, thank you. Nice to meet you. So I'm looking at his name. And so I looked at the, um, the person who was there, the petty officer, and I go, Who was that? She says, That's the commandant of the entire Naval Academy. Oh, that's great. And I go, Whoa! <laughs> and actually, him and I were kind of little buddies. He would see me and say, Hey, Know. And my, my son would be humiliated, he'd be like, Dad, right. that's a Stop wow. talking. But he's like a guy just like you yes. and I.
1: Yes, yes,
0: But you know, and people love to share this story with you.
1: So, that moment when he called you, you must have been a, so
0: proud. I was totally like, I wish I was there. Yeah, and it was, I was so proud. We were proud, my wife and I, and, and I say it's all my wife's doing because I worked all the time when she was raising the children, mm-hmm. but he had focus and even though he got into some other colleges for ROTC he got a great scholarship he said i want to go to the naval academy and i think that's what's kept him in there because it's no party i mean you don't get to speak to him you don't get to see him and it's really tough but but he did really well and i and i respect those people
1: well, me too and uh, his mindset is very much like yours was you know having you know a goal and going after harder it. i think now, I are know. all the kids like that i What's that? Are all of your kids like that?
0: Well, uh, to a certain degree. I mean, you know, each you know what the thing is, each child is going to live their own life and they're all going to move at their own pace and they're all going to be happy with what they choose. And I think I think Ben is probably the most determined out of all of them because just like for me from med school, it's all or none. Either you're in the Naval Academy or you're not. He would and if he didn't get in, I'm sure he would have tried again or he would have went ROT for ROTC for sure. He was definitely going in the Navy. But he got in. yeah. And I think they saw that determination when they met him, when they interviewed him. I think they can read that. right? They see enough people, you can, you can read that in somebody's eyes. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. But my other children are amazing in their own way. They do their own things, and I try to support them in their own, in their own way. I mean, I, I, I was this close to going into the military, I was accepted into the Army Medical Corps. Okay. But they lost my file. And so by the time they found my file, they called me and said, oh, we found it, we found it. I said, well, I already got into a state school for medicine, so no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have been army; It would have been disastrous with my wife, right? Because she's right. Navy. Right, right, so, right.
1: But. Fantastic. Um, robotics. Yeah. What do you think of them? In robotics. What's that? What do you think about them? In robotics
0: and medicine is just amazing. Now, the thing about robotics is it, it allows, robotics, do you know where robotics started? Robotics was commissioned by the U.S. Army hmm. because they wanted to be able to perform surgery in a dangerous area up on the front. So they were, So the Army, and I know one of the generals that was commissioned to do that, and I became good friends with him as my speaking. I ran into him one day, and um, he told me that basically the Army had that. And they were working on doing it like in space. Like say you needed surgery in space. What you needed was somebody that knew how to put the instruments into the person. And then somebody on earth who was a very experienced surgeon could do the surgery. But also on the battlefield, you couldn't bring the best surgeons to the front of the battlefield because they get killed. So that's where robotics came about. And then they saw, uh, industry saw a need for it uh, in just general medicine. For very fine workings, not to have to cut somebody open and things like that. So robotics is is a great tool, but you have to understand the limitations of robotics. The robot doesn't do the surgery for you, you control the robot. So we used to joke and say, a bad surgeon using a robot is a bad surgeon on the robot. Doesn't make you a good surgeon. It does allow you to do a few more things that you wouldn't be able to do if you weren't using a robot.
1: In that example you gave of the surgeon back on the computer, you know, and in, in someone on the battlefield, is that happening today?
0: Um, you know, I don't know. Some of that's secret. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, works for NASA, he actually I went to medical school, medical school with him, and he's a captain at NASA, and he asked me questions from time to time about those things. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. The thing that I think difficult is the lag. Mm-hmm. You can't have any lag, like you can't move your hand and then two minutes later it moves up in space. And then, oh, there's some bleeding, okay, so then two minutes later you do this. So it's getting there, and like any lag, like Facebook, podcast, things like that, live podcasts, once that lag is gone, and it will be, because mm-hmm. it's getting better every year, then it's, it's applicable. It's very doable, very, very doable.
1: Do you have any experience using robotics? Oh
0: sure, we actually brought, my partner and I brought robot here to Binghamton. There was no robot here. They approached us and said, well do you want to learn how to do the robot? And you know, I was doing things without the robot and I said, yeah, it sounds like fun, let's go do it. So we got trained out in California at the headquarters and brought it to Binghamton. We did our first couple of robotic cases, I don't know how many years ago, it is now 10 years ago at least, and it's been great since. Hmm. And so I don't use it much anymore because I can do the same thing without the robot And so for me, it's not that essential, but for other surgeons, it's very important for them.
1: What interests do you have outside of work? Outside of work, what's that? I heard you like to paint around the house and whatnot. Well,
0: I I, I love carpentry. (laughs) I love doing things with my hands. I think it's important that you also, the brain is so unused. There's so many areas in the brain that we just don't use. So it's nice to open up different parts of your brain like, I like to learn some different languages, but I'm very bad at it. I don't have a language brain, so it's very hard. But I love to learn different words and then meet somebody. And if you go to Disney or to Disney Cruise, immediately you run into people. And my sure. wife's like, please don't try to speak to them in their language. I'm like, but they love it. They love it. And so, so learn a few different languages. That's a part of my brain that's really stuck right now. I love to use my hands. Love to paint. And I, I think when I paint, and I, when I say not painting a picture, my, my sisters got that um, art. I didn't get that gift. They got that. But very fine things like in the house and things like that because I change brush sizes. And as my wife says, I can't afford you if you're a real painter because you just take so long to paint one thing because <laughs> it's got to be
1: perfect. perfect. right?
0: But <laughs> I think it's that eye hand motion, you know, learning new things and techniques and, I, and one of these days, I'm going to do a, a little podcast about painting and surgery because you got to use the right brush. Yeah, you got absolutely. to use the right stroke. Mm-hmm. And you got to use the right equipment. And there's nothing, people, the real painters know that not all paints are alike and not all woods are alike. So the surface needs something different. Medicine's the same way. And industry, not industry, administrative hospital administrators had tried to make it so that all the surgeons use the same things the same way every time. And that's wrong. Each surgeon needs something different. Each patient needs something different. Each piece of equipment works a different way. So that's one of my hobbies. I love doing that. And then there isn't much time to do anything else really, you know, spend time with your family, if you can do that, a lot of surgeons, a lot of doctors, especially now it's getting harder and harder, you don't get any time with your family anymore. My That's daughter, tough. I have four boys and a daughter and the, and the difference in age is nine years from my last child to my daughter. So four boys, then nine years and then my daughter, eight years then my daughter. And it's like a different family and I keep saying I'm not going to do the same that I did to my boys as I'm going to do to her in the sense that I'm not going to do the same thing that, to her, I'm going to spend more time with her. and it's hard. It's not like you, you, you hang up the phone, you leave, and you're done for the day. It doesn't work that way as a doctor, no matter what kind of doctor you are. You, you stay late. You have to take care of your patients. They, they call you. You call the new weekend. You have emergencies. Medicine works around the clock. And it's very hard on your family to, and traveling. My daughter used to crawl into my suitcase we know she didn't want me to leave she'd hang on my leg and she'd say why are you going away to a different country why are you leaving us and i'd say because somebody somewhere has a daughter like you and i'd hate for them to not to know what to do when they need to do it so you know as she got older so we had a little thing everywhere i'd go away i'd come back with a little stuffed animal from a different country so if i went to africa i'd bring an elephant you know a little elephant if i went to indonesia i'd bring the monkey with the big nose or a snake from somewhere else. So that was our thing, cause every time i come in the door, she'd give me a hug and what'd you bring me? What little animal would you bring me? So she's got like, over a hundred stuffed animals. That's great. Yeah, so that was our little thing. Yeah. But, and FaceTime now is really important too.
1: Family vacations?
0: I go? try, family vacations, yeah. We, when we go away, my wife comes from a tremendously big family. I come from a very small family. And so we try to go away as a family if we can. But every once in a while, it's nice just to be with your immediate family to learn what everybody's doing, because if you don't sit down and have a dinner, my, my wife is very big on sitting down having a dinner, and you don't realize the value of that, because you don't know your child, I still don't know my children, but you don't know your child until you sit down with them and hear what they're doing. And so we're big of going around the table and saying, so what did you do today, What well, can you say something nice, what, what did you do good today, or what did you learn today, I maybe mean, it was nothing, maybe it was one thing, and but it's interesting. Important. Oh my God, yeah. we've given that up. Yeah. Did you see that commercial recently with the, who was, it, who was the, the Talladega Nights uh, star where he got the iPhone and, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it'll come to me, but, so it's a movie star and he's at dinner and he's got his cell phone and, and the daughter's saying, you know, I had a really tough day in school today and he goes, shh, 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 I'm getting something on Facebook, be quiet, be quiet and it's great and it, and it talks about that. And I love that commercial because it shows you now how you've given it up. So at our dinner table, cell phones are yes. gone. Yeah, yeah. ours as well. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's great. Yeah. Uh,
1: so you've taken a lot of flights over the years to different places. Uh, any memorable moments, any memorable people that, that um, led to a good conversation?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, first of all, the relationships, the people, first of all, I will tell you that first impressions are sometimes or most of the time wrong. All the all the biases I had about different people in different countries, I I just I'm amazed at how wrong I was. People around the world are very, very nice. They really are. Sometimes it's governments that aren't nice, but the people are genuinely just wonderful and they treat you so well and they appreciate what you do. And I remember one moment, it was my second time I'd been in Saudi Arabia and, and the temperature there is, oh, oh my God, it's, it's 100 degrees, 105 degrees. And I had just finished the surgery, just on a hysterectomy. And I'm sitting in the back of the car and I always wear a suit when I travel and it's got to be 110 degrees in the car. So I'm sitting in the car with the people, my guide, and the the representative that's taking me around. And so these people are walking towards the car, and it's a man with his traditional robe on with the hat and the band and the tobe, it's called, the robe, the white robe, and they're walking rapidly towards our car. And I said to my rep, I said, oh my goodness, I screwed up, something went wrong with the surgery. And so I said, "What, what happened? And so the guy goes, don't worry, don't worry. So he opens the window, and the guy says something to him in Arabic, and he hands me a pen and a watch. And so I said to them, What's the matter? And the guy turns around and he goes, That was you, you worked on his mother, you just did surgery on his mother, and he's given you something that's extremely valuable to him, it's a beautiful pen and a watch. And I said, Well, I can't take it. And he goes, You have to. Otherwise, and I said, Why? He insult. says yeah. they come from a poor part of the country and they traveled all the way here for you to do the surgery on their mother and you did it, and she looks amazing, because these surgeries, when you do them and they go well. The patient's sitting up in bed and going, did I have surgery? Yeah. And, and and so I took them and I said, you know, shukran, shukran, which means thank you in Arabic, because you have to learn those words. And you know, they were so grateful. And now I keep a case in my office where when something like that happens, I put that in the case and people say, why do you got that watch? Why is there a watch in your case? So Why is this in there? Why is that in there? And so things like that are very, very memorable to me. And people have so little in other countries, they really, really do. Yeah. They really have so little.
1: Have you, uh, do you collect anything as you, you try, yeah, I know you said you like to bring things home for your oh, daughter, anything absolutely. for Absolutely.
0: Oh, yeah, you know, well, I was big on Starbucks cups. Okay. So every country I went to, I would say to my guide, we gotta stop at Starbucks. And he goes, why? I said, I need the <laughs> Starbucks cup that say this right. country. in it." so I got, they're all over the kitchen. My wife wants to throw them out. But I don't have the one from Syria because I didn't have time to get to the store to get it. And now everything is a mess. But so I'm I'm waiting. Hopefully I'll get that one. Starbucks cups. Some people give me gifts. Whenever you go to a different country, they give you gifts. Mm -hmm. Like I have a a full robe from Saudi Arabia. And I have the hat. And I have other things that they've given me, you know, gifts and tea sets and things like that that are great. Mm -hmm. Dates are really important over there. They give you dates, you know the Kind you eat, right? You know? <laughs> right. So, so that's important. Um, so that's really good. But I think all the, the, the relationships, the pictures, the photos, the, the moments you have with people that you share, those are really important. Mm.
1: You once told me uh, a story um, about sitting next to Cal Ripken Jr. <laughs> yeah,
0: sure. Can share I, that? I was actually on my way to London and I was, I just gave a lecture in Baltimore, so I get on the plane, I'm on a Delta flight, and I'm on the way to Atlanta to catch my overseas flight to London, right? So I'm sitting there, nobody's sitting next to me in the very front row, and all of a sudden this gentleman sits down, very tall guy, and I look at him, and I go, I know this guy from somewhere, I just don't remember where. So I'm watching a movie, and he reaches over, and he shakes my hand, and he goes, my name's Cal, and so I go, oh, my name's Jim, and and I look, and I put my headphones back on, and I go, I go, Callis and Cal Ripken? And he goes, yeah. And I said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you." And he goes, "That's the way I prefer it." So it was a two-hour flight, two and a half hours. And so people behind me, I look back, and they're like, their eyes are wide open, and then they're like, they want to be in my seat. And I'm like, well, that ain't happening, number one. But but you know, I, I was speaking to him, and he's a great guy. And we just talked about things, and he talked about a safari went on, and talked about this, talked about his son, talked about this and that. Um, so I said to him, if you ever need to get in a college, just give me a call. And I gave him my card. And, and I didn't take a selfie because like, okay, I mean, that's great, but he's, he's a guy just like the rest of right. us, but a great guy. I mean, yeah. really nice. And, and I think some of these people feel lonely because I've met a lot of, you know, people over the years that are very famous or rich, whatever it is. and And they just feel like they want to have a nice conversation with somebody, you right. know?
1: without being bothered yeah sure. and it was
0: great we didn't talk much about baseball because I don't know much about it but he talked a little bit about it he was going to the all-star game I remember and he okay. had all these he had all these things he had to read all the stats he had to memorize so he could talk about it you know he was doing so, his
1: prep work yeah
0: I was doing my prep work and he was doing his prep <laughs> that's work right. it was kinda cool just sit there shoot the breeze with him and you know he didn't feel intimidated and I didn't feel intimidated and that was kinda nice that's
1: neat how important is it uh, doctor for people to live out their story, their life story. Right. Um, You mentioned, you know, some people just don't have the the resources even to be able to travel to to have, you know, uh, something medically taken care of. But in general, um, for people that are watching, for people that are thinking about what they want to do in the future, not to have the fears, the resistance, um, how
0: important is that? Uh, it's it's their life you only get one life and you know it's hard when you have a family and you have to make a decision like that there are different factors everybody has their own situation their own story and but you don't know what's on the other side of that door have I made poor decisions absolutely I had my own practice for years and and I went out of business that's just the way medicine is medicine is very against doctors now it's horrible but and i don't know why um, but 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 have i made poor decisions sure and have i recovered from that sure but you know if i didn't get my own practice i never would have met my wife and wouldn't have her and my wonderful children so things go certain ways but it, that one decision i that's why i like to watch america's uh what's that? america's got talent and right. stuff like that because sometimes as they say as the people the judges say this two minutes has changed your life. And whenever I see those shows where that happens, I'm like, yeah. And for me, it, it's not as, as glorious as being on TV in front of you know, 100,000, millions of people, but it's different. And so for young people that, should I do that? What if it doesn't work? Well, if it doesn't work, go do something else, or at least try it. But, but what if it does work? You know, and, and, and pe- like when people say, What's it like to speak in front of people? And I said, I'm going to give you some pointers, I'll give you some tips, I'm going to do this, but you know something? Go get out there. Go do it. And when people give me advice, I love it because I'm like, Oh, how could I, how could I do that better? What did I do? You know, what can I do to do that better? What can I talk about that? Yeah. Uh, it's a shame that probably I'll be my best just before I have to retire and stop speaking, right? But, um, but make that decision. You know, Just go ahead and take that chance if you can. And sometimes it's risky. Sometimes you risk everything. And especially for young people. I think young people these days, it's because of social media and things, they kind of go into like a a self-cave. I don't think that's good. You got to get out there. And how hard do you push your child? should you tell your child i want you to be this i mean i told my wife i wanted all four of my children to go into the navy she said well you can't push them i said well some parents do i said but i don't know when to push or right. not push so it's,
1: it's, it's a it's a tough balance it's a tough balance yeah
0: it's not easy it's not not easy being a parent
1: that's right um if you could go back and give some advice to your 20 year old self anything different that that you would tell yourself,
0: Uh,
1: knowing what you know now?
0: Yeah, yes. It's it's a common thing that everybody says, don't worry as much. Mm -hmm. Because back, I I believe that there is, I I believe that everybody has sort of like a spiritual surrounding around them. You know, you don't know what's going to happen after you die. Each religion has their own, and some people think nothing. But I don't think that's, I, I don't think that, I don't think I would have such a beautiful family by chance. I'm lucky. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be given that. But that's not chance. You can't take all those millions of atoms, put them together, and I have such wonderful people. You can't do that. So I think there's a power there. I don't know what that power is. Is it God? Probably, but God comes in different forms for other people. But I think there's a spirit around everybody. The patients I operate on, you know, while I'm doing surgery and the things that happen in your life. So what I would say to people is. Raise your antennas at 20 years old. Don't think you know everything. And sometimes you just have to trust in that the right thing is going to happen. And at 20, I worried about so many things. At 20, I was worrying about getting into medical school. And would I have still done the same if I didn't worry? Yeah, but at least I wouldn't have worried as much. Right. So when I meet someone, it appears not to worry as much and they still do well. I, wow, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have learned that I wish I could have mastered that how to be successful and not worry as much I wish I could have done that that's what what I'd give advice to young people don't worry as much but also be careful because there's a very fine line between bad things in your life like drugs getting addicted to things there's a very fine line by having too much fun and not taking a responsible life route Mm -hmm. it's a very fine line so easy to to be on the wrong side and people go back and forth that line all the time but eventually I say to my boys I say look you know you're good kids you're great kids always stay on that line of goodness stay on that side no matter what you do
1: great advice Um, what happens after we die what do you
0: think Um, I would like to think after I die that a I'll come back (laughs) <laughs> as something different. Um, you know, you meet people that have old souls on them. I think my daughter has an old soul on her. She's just amazing. I don't know how she got that. but But I definitely think that you don't just disappear. Um, There was a movie and it was about the people that went to space and they came back. It wasn't the Martian, it was another one um, where the guy went to somewhere, a plant came back and he was there and a book falls off the shelf and his and his daughter looks and sees the book and and then she finally finally meets him when she's older because we all live in time. Time is always together okay and so basically I think that you, I hope I'll be there to look over the people that what they did for me so I hope I'll be there for my kids to look over them to be a spirit around them I think I think that if you and I are sitting here right now and and my mother came in in spirit you'd have a heart attack and I'd say really I'm in the middle of a shoot <laughs> because for me if that happened I'd be okay with that I see but the average person if if a spirit <laughs> showed themselves in one way or another it would, dis- it would destroy them mm-hmm. but maybe it's a breeze Maybe it's a person that smiles at you. Maybe it's something that goes right for you. Maybe someone sends you a message that you don't know what that is. Maybe your day goes well. Yeah. And maybe they give you these bad days so you can appreciate when a day goes well, right? Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. If every day was good in your life, you would get used to it. You wouldn't appreciate it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think after you die, you, you, you exist as a spirit. And you exist as an entity that helps other people. That and it might be your own people. Who knows? What I don't know. I'll let you know later when I run you. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's great.
1: Well, this has been wonderful. It's uh, been great. Thank definitely you for want to have you me. back because there's there's so many other topics that we could uh, totally. discuss. Uh, but before I let you go, Dr. Kondrup, yep. Uh one last question. Sure. Uh, what do you want your legacy
0: to be? Uh, my kids have a thing they call me legend, you know, and I'd say, I, 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 first of all, you know, I don't want one of those boring sort of wakes where everybody comes by and they're all sad. Don't be sad. I've had a great life. Don't be sad. I want to have a party at my wake. I want to have a, you know, that's fine. I want to have a great picture there, you know. I want, I want the mortician to put a smile on my face, okay. I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want that. But I want my kids to say, yeah, you know, he, he was, he, I made a difference to somebody in my life. That's what I want my uh, legacy to be. I made a difference. People, oh, he was a great teacher. I really enjoyed that guy, you know. He, he was awesome. And he did everything he could to get, put everything into teaching something, no matter what it was. He put his all in there. That's what I would like. That's what I want. And to be, to be remembered as a good father and a good husband.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, We appreciate Roger. it, and we'll do it again. Sounds great. Roger. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Great, thanks.